Welcome back to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. So Pooja, you mentioned that there are a lot of patients that nowadays are referred to also transcatheter mitral repair. Um, so what is what is the role of the surgeon on the heart team in that discussion? So, you know, at our institution, we I am very thankful that they've kept the surgeons involved because as you know, the cardiologists can do the mitral clip procedure um, by themselves. But at our institution, actually, we, we do the surgeon and the cardiologist. So in our heart team role, um, we do have, uh, you know, a, a clinic that we run with both the cardiologist, uh, structural cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon. So we have several days in a team. Um, and so we see the patient together on the initial evaluation. And then we under, they always undergo testing such as like a TEE. Um, and then we have an imaging cardiologist who will review the TEE on every meeting. We have a weekly meeting. And I think that's the key role because really that's where I learned um, the pathology of the valve. And, you know, sometimes we take for granted what we think we know. And then here's this imaging person who's dedicated to this, who really can tell you, you know, no, there's a cleft here, or maybe there's a cleft. I mean, sometimes obviously they're wrong, but um, they've done such a great job in sort of defining for us the pathology. And then that's really where we as surgeons can say, well, I think this is, you know, a fairly easily repairable problem. Um, and then, you know, we're also involved not only in the transcatheter mitral replacement, but, you know, there's a couple other trials, which um, have been hard to enroll in, but, you know, surgical, uh, transcatheter mitral repair, like neocord and things like that. So I think there are different options available, at least from the surgical side, but I think we um, can at least tell them with some certainty that this is a repairable situation versus subjecting this person to future anticoagulation and or valve replacement and all the complications. Right. Yeah. So, so Rob, maybe it's, it's um, when you tell in the, during that, that hearty meeting that you can do it robotically, does that make a difference in the, in the decision? Uh, yes. So first off, I want to say I'm delighted to hear that's how Pooja's heart team discussions go, because that's exactly what we do as well. We see patients all together. Um, I would say like the 45-year-old does not come into the heart team evaluation, but the 70-plus-year-old does. And that's exactly how we do it as well. Um, minimally invasive surgery, particularly robotic surgery, does come into the discussion point because, one, it's a, a patient satisfier. But there... There is a difference there. And, and Gene can talk about this too. I mean, when patients can typically get out of the hospital in three to five days from a pretty straight up robotic repair, uh, and you can talk about durability uh, of that repair, particularly in posterior leaflet disease that should outlast the patient's lifespan um, without having necessarily to go back for replacement, it becomes a very uh, palatable uh, intervention for a lot of patients who are on that hinge point of trying to decide, you know, in particular the heart team, is this patient kind of too sick for surgery and we should put a, a, an edge device in, or should we be looking really at true surgical repair for the durability sake? And, and so in our team, yeah, I, I do think it makes a significant difference. Right. And, and Gene, so when you when you started your program in in, um, in New York with robotic mitral, uh, did it immediately have an impact on the referral? Uh, it it well, it was I would say no and yes, and because we started the the right mini approach basically in the mid '90s when the heartport instrumentation first came out, so we had a pity 
pretty big uh, referral, it definitely solidified it, uh, having that as an option. Now, I have a question uh, for Rob. Rob, we talk about things, and I guess, to me, how much of the heart team, when you have heart team meetings, how much do you pay attention to the fact that if you're going to do a mitral and the patient's an AF, you're going to get rid of the appendage? Does that become into the equation too? Yes. Because it it's not just a mitral valve. We have all the disease. Not everybody's a 42-year-old who's class one short of breath and, you know, had a bad echo. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I'd still say at least 20% of our patients have AF. And we have a, you know, we have a, a referral practice, but at least 20% of them have AF. And, you know, that's part of the process. What are you going to do in terms of delivering a lifelong solution for them? So, yes, it comes into the discussion. Also, Watchman does as well. I mean, these are all kind of pieces and parts that we have uh, that we talk about. I think also, you know, it's just the reality of what's the complexity of the disease. And when you do edge-to-edge repair, since I am involved in the edge-to-edge -edge repairs as well, it's like, what do we really think we're going to achieve with that? First, what do we think we can do with surgery from a structural standpoint? And then not just, hey, what are we going to do about the appendage, but maybe we can wholeheartedly, honestly, address their longstanding persistent AFib with a, an aggressive ablation approach. Um, and we work with our EP colleagues a fair amount on this for the follow-up. And they do a lot of touch-up follow-up, but they're like, this is a lot better than having to do, <coughs> you know, a failed uh, transcatheter ablation time and time again. When you guys have surgical lines, they can go in and find kind of spot, spot areas where it didn't go all the way through. They like it. So um, it's I think that's been a key part to particularly that, again, that 75-year-old who you're waxing back and forth on, on what's the right approach, all that goes into the conversation that's part of the heart team. Forgive me for ignoring rhythm management, because I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah, that, that's an important aspect as well. So, so Robert, when you started your micro program, your, your robotic program, probably, you know, a procedure took much longer than an surgical one. How did you deal with that? And, you know, people looking over your shoulder, hey, can you not hurry up? And we have to we have another case scheduled. Well, <laughs> so uh, we did a couple of things. One, we kept it to simplistic disease. Uh, so it was P2s for a long time. And then, uh, and then we just gradually, we watched our times and we actually uh, used that as the basis for when we were going to take on more complex disease as we got... Uh, more facile with the procedure through that technique, then we would expand uh, what we were willing to tackle. And now we routinely will do, you know, double valves, redos, et cetera, um, with ablations uh, and take on kind of a fair amount of challenges. I think the other thing that's happened also in the robotic world is with the XI platform, they changed the, the, uh, the light source for the camera, which doesn't heat up the chest as much, which allows you to do longer, more complex procedures without worrying about inducing uh, some ischemia on the heart too. So a, a bunch of those kind of issues have come into play, allowing us to take on more complex disease. Yeah, so starting with the easy cases, yeah. Right, but Peter, I'm, I'm gonna add something else. I think the underlying thing for people who wanna be trained in this and in this approach and want to succeed, it takes institutional commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think our professional societies, the STS and the ATS, who are basically supporting this education with, with, uh, with grants and scholarship grants, the key element, the key one of the key requirements is institutional mm -hmm. support. Mm 
You have to have, and you can't do it, as you said, with somebody looking over my shoulder saying, when are you going to get out of the room and stuff? And the same thing, you can't do it with a different uh, anesthesiologist every day. Yeah. Uh, so it's just not, it's not going to work. You know, I, I, I tell my patients, you know, every day, you know, we have a lot of anesthesiologists here. We have a lot of cardiac anesthesiologists. There are only three who are allowed to work with me and the right. same for the nurses. And that's what makes it success. success also. It allows you to grow, but it also gives you the depth of success. So when something unusual happens, you have very attuned people working with you uh, to do that. And Rob, I mean, I don't think people understand the, the focus that you have to have to do that. Uh, people can get very lost, very focused, you know, working the console. And it's, um, it's amazing how much more situational awareness we delegate out when somebody's in the console. Yeah, we have a, uh, Peter, we have a training paradigm for all the staff that are involved who are going to come into the team, uh, as well as the bedside assistants too. So <clears throat> to Gene's point, yeah, it's, it's, this is a team in and of itself, and uh, you really rely on consistent partnership with with your teammates, uh, and including anesthesiology. Uh, and I also agree, administration, hospital support uh, for these kind of big processes. Also, and going down the transcatheter, I mean, <clears throat> I think when you put the mitral platform together, and you're looking at a lot of very expensive tools to address mitral valve disease, you have to have administrative buy-in. Um, and so we've been fortunate that we have a great administrative staff to work with at the heart hospital. Um, <clears throat> but I think obviously if you've got a robot uh, team, you've already got an administration that's that's listening to you. Right, yeah, exactly. So Pooja, do you have a robot program in your hospital? Uh, we have robotic, but not robotic mitral. So the right. um, one of our partners does minimally invasive um, uh, mitral through the right thoracotomy. But that's what I wanted to ask uh, both Jean and Rob. If um, you know, do you think as a a growing surgeon and one who sort of trained in this mitral valve era, one is it imperative that we all learn to do at least in the structural world do robotic mitral, and two, how do you how do you think one should get started? Do you think it's starting with a minimally invasive or can you go from open to robotic as long as you know how to repair a valve? So I'll take that one first. I, I think, I think, I think you have to do right chest approach mitrals before you can do robotic and you have to do that. And the only thing, the only difference we're talking about is instead of the thoracotomy, the exact same view, the exact same setup, but everything's focused in a workspace where instead of having this big space where your instruments can go in anyway, your instruments are coming in through a fixed space. So you've created this workspace, this cone of access for your instruments and everything. And that's really the only, the only difference. Um, you know, whether you're working off the screen or whether you're working through the thoracotomy and look, look at Hugo Vanderman, look, look what he accomplished, um, basically, uh, really very close to totally endoscopic mitral repair with his approach, which is, was a quotes, mini thoracotomy approach, but it was very limited in terms of that for the access. So I, I think if you do right chest access, 
I think it's it's a natural to go ahead and do it. And I think it's very difficult for somebody de novo to go through it because it's adding more to the learning curve. And, you know, people talked about things, well, what about balloon occlusion of the aorta and stuff? And, you know, I'm going to, if when we have people who come and we have a lot of visitors and stuff like that, and the people that we're training in conjunction with the STS and the ATS, you know, I'm not going to train people on both at the same time. I want somebody who the, the recipe for success is somebody who's done mini thoracotomy approach and is ready to, to basically minimize that. And what, however they, however they occluded the aorta and however they pleached, I don't want to change that. That's, that's a different learning curve. Um, so you keep it as focused as possible. Rob, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, you just described my kind of experiential learning process as it was. So I, I, did a lot of open surgery uh, when I was in my training. I then uh, transitioned to uh, port access or right right chest approach surgery uh, and did a lot of that all before I ever took on a single robotic case. <clears throat> so I felt fairly well versed in in port access or mentally, you know, right chest approach surgery. Um, and I, I do think I think that's the best way to go. Now the question is, does every program need to have a robotic surgery? Right? If you're going to be a big mitral valve center, do you need to have a robotic program? And to me, I would hope so. Um, and that I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to lay out a mitral valve intervention platform that includes everything from transcatheter to, you know, the most advanced surgical techniques. And to me, a robotic approach is one of the most advanced surgical techniques for taking care of the mitral valve. And there are things that I can do robotically that I can't always do port access. Even though when I was starting out, I would have said that, you know, if I was worried, I would always go back to my port access and I could get somebody through something. Now I actually think a little bit the other way where sometimes I'm doing a port access case for one reason or another, helping out a a partner who's not not doing robotic. And I'm frustrated because I don't have the robot in there. And, and for so, which particular cases, or what, do we, what are the advantages of the robot? The well, I, your access to the subavular apparatus robotically, both visualization and with the dynamic atrial retractor, greatly increase your ability to do multi-cord operations. And so I do a lot of bileaflet repairs. Um, and, and I would say also with my your disjunction and being able to reseat the posterior leaflet onto the annulus, the, the suture angles that you need for making all that happen, I think are just, it's easier robotically. Right, right. right. A long shafted instrument doesn't have a wrist. Right. And, and, and that can be very frustrating. I, I just wanna uh, reemphasize what Rob said about the subvalvular apparatus, because, you know, it was, it was like when, before we did a lot of AF work, you know, the, the pulmonary veins were just where you put the sucker in to keep everything dry. Now that, you know, we do so much ablation work, you know, you know, the variations and the vulgarities of the pulmonary vein anatomy. And it's the same thing with the subvalvular apparatus. That was the thing we put the sucker in to keep you keep you from drowning when you're working. Now it becomes an integral part of the repair. You can see where they're abnormal uh, cortal. The uh, to me and I'm sort of trying to do a um, a uh, not a chronology, but I'm trying to 
put together an anatomy book of subvalvular variations and the diseases that travel with them. Because I'm convinced some of the disease processes that we see are a result of embryologic functions. And you can see, instead of having your classic two, trunkle, two trunks on the left, three trunks on the right, oh, the whole posterior wall didn't delaminate. We have all these little baby trunklets going along the back. And I, I think we see that more in association with certain uh, prolapse patterns. So it's, it's amazing, one from an embryologic understanding, etiologic point of view, but as Rob said, more importantly, how do you fix the thing? You know, and what are your options? And, you know, if you can see something and oh, say, I'm gonna do, modify the papillary muscle trunk here and take care of commissural pro, prolapse over in the uh, A3P3 corner, you know, things like that, to be able to understand that and see that, that's something that's really tough to do with the mini thoracotomy approach. And so impossible so to do with the sternotomy approach. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.